This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 39 with Dana Chisnell. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. This time I got a chance to chat with Dana Chisnell, a civic designer, author, and accomplished speaker on UX and research. Dana has done a ton of really interesting work on the voter experience in ballot design. This is literally the perfect person and the perfect timing to have this chat just days before the next presidential election here in the US. We had a really fascinating chat about her work in civic design, the very complex challenges that are involved in the voter experience and ballot design, and stories of how her and her team went about overcoming those challenges. I know you're gonna find this one super interesting. The Aurelius Podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius helps you analyze, search, and share all of your research in one place. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Dana. Hey, how are you, Zach? I'm doing great. I am excited to have you on and have a conversation with you today, so I appreciate you taking the time. It's my pleasure. Cool. Typically, how we start these things is just in the event somebody is not familiar with you or maybe the work you've done. Could you give folks listening a little bit of background of, you know, sort of who you are, the work that you do, things that you're passionate about? (laughs) So my name is Dana Chisnell. I'm based outside Boston in Massachusetts, in the United States, in North America. (laughs) I've been working for the last uh, couple of decades in what I call civic design. That is mostly design and user research, the government and civic space. A lot of that time has been around design in voting and elections, which if you're listening from a country outside of the United States, I hope we will reveal just how important that is because voting and elections in America are really complicated. Yeah. I'm actually really glad that you brought up a couple things. First of all, I'm glad that you kind of added a bit of a definition of what civic design is because I think a lot of people have heard of it and they're like, I think I know what that is, but maybe not quite sure. And I'm also glad that you qualified that because we do have a lot of folks who listen from all over the world, uh, not just the U.S. to our particular podcast. And so that's one of the very reasons I'm excited to have a chat with you. So as we're having this conversation, we are, what are we now here, about 12 days or so out from the election this year in 2020. So for anybody listening after the fact, and we were looking to release this just before the election occurs this year. So There's a lot going on, complications with voting in general. But now, again, if you're listening after the fact, this was recorded during the global pandemic, which makes voting even more difficult and confusing. And I thought, what better person to have on than Dana, one of the experts who quite literally worked on this stuff from a design research perspective. So really, really cool. Can you start by explaining a little bit of the complications that you've found, you know, particularly when starting your work and helping design a better voting process? Among other challenges in the U.S. voting space is that elections are run locally. There are somewhere around 5,000 local election jurisdictions, depending on how you count them. They might be counties or townships or parishes or boroughs, but they each run their own elections, whether it's a federal election or a local election. So coming up on the presidential election, No matter where you are in the U.S., you'll have kind of a long ballot that goes from voting for president and vice president or electors who uh, ultimately elect them to questions on the ballot that will ultimately 
change the constitution of your state if enough people vote yes. And so there's a lot of direct democracy. So there are all these layers that I've just laid out. One is elections are run locally and the rules are different. There is a lot of state law that determines how elections get run and a lot of federal law that determines how election get, elections get run. So your, your local county clerk who puts on this event has about a million constraints. And by the way, that person probably doesn't have a designer in their office unless you live in a really big county like Los Angeles or suburban Cook County in Chicago or New York City. Otherwise, it's somebody in the office or a vendor who lays out ballots and does all the other design in elections. There are a lot of instructions. There's a lot of voter information, voter education that goes out. All the things that are used to recruit poll workers, websites, all of those things, all of that stuff gets done internally by folks who may or may not have much in the way of a design background. And so the work that I did at the Center for Civic Design for several years was to develop templates and guidelines that those folks could pick up and use themselves to move their offices and their voters into a better voter experience overall. Anyway, elections in the U.S. are complicated because there's so much history. That sounds like quite the challenge to tackle, as is typical of my job on the podcast, to try to summarize a little bit of what I heard you saying. Really interesting, too, because so one of these things is way back when sort of the whole field of UX started and the the quote came up where someone's going to have an experience whether you design for it or not. Someone's going to vote whether or not you intentionally designed to make that easier, understandable or not, right? It sounds like maybe that's the problem that you ran into. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. We hope. Well, that's just I think that's just it too, is is helping people understand how to I can imagine is part of the challenge, right? That's a huge challenge, actually. And one of the biggest barriers for people is just like not knowing what the mechanics are. This year with COVID, there are more different ways to get a ballot and market and cast it than there ever have been before, which I consider to be a good thing. There are also some camps that are working hard to purposely confuse folks about what their options are and what the rules are. Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a lot of struggle in between those two things here in the U.S. right now in this moment. That was part of what I was going to ask you because you mentioned something in describing this work a bit where there's a lot of different federal rights or national restrictions and rules about how voting happens. And then to add on top of that, there are all these local you know, rules and regulations. What did you find there? Were those things ever in opposition to each other? This happens a lot. This happened, the biggest example I can think of is in Wisconsin, where there are these federal deadlines. For example, a really big one is that election officials need to send ballots to American citizens who are living abroad and military who are abroad 45 days before election day. That is that is a hard and fast deadline. But the Wisconsin legislature passed state law about other deadlines that conflicts with that particular deadline. So in the last couple of elections, some voters in Wisconsin have received two ballots uh, for the same election because these two deadlines conflicted with one another. This is super confusing for folks. It is really hard for election administrators to manage because now they've got to figure out like, what instructions to give voters and 
how to process those ballots. Should they get two from somebody? By the way, you can't vote twice. Like, that is not a possible thing. Right. Well, that was the first thing that came to mind for me is that, well, if you get two ballots in the mail, maybe I have to believe that the first thing that comes into somebody's mind is, well, did the first one I send not get counted? Should I vote again? Was there an error? Which one should I fill out? Who should I send it to? Are they different people? Yeah, all of those questions. All of those questions came up. All of those questions were dealt with. But you can never be sure as an election administrator that everyone who was affected actually got the information that they needed. Yeah, that kind of stuff happens a little too frequently. Well, again, going back to just uh, describing it no other way other than a, a big, hairy problem with a lot of complexities at sort of every level. I want to kind of rewind and can you talk to us about how you started to even approach this challenge, right? So, I mean, somebody says, hey, there's obviously there's an issue here, even just in the short time you and I have discussed this. I think anybody can say there's something to fix here. Where do you even begin to address a problem like that? Well, I actually got started on this in about 2000 during the presidential election. Then I was watching the returns. I lived in San Francisco then. I was watching the returns from Florida and, you know, on the broadcast news because we had broadcast news then. And (laughs) uh, seeing people leave the polling place saying, I don't think I voted for the guy I meant to vote for. And I was like, that's really interesting because that seems like a design problem. I wonder how elections get done. Sometime later, I emailed my district supervisor and I was like, hey, Aaron, how does how do elections get done? He's like, you go down to you go down to City Hall and ask somebody. And so I did. (laughs) And I ended up on a committee and that happened. And then through professional associations that I was part of, I ended up on a couple of projects and then did some research projects that inform what your ballot looks like now with a bunch of uh, other awesome people. That gets me to about, I don't know, 2007 or eight. Beginning to approach it was really about how do elections get done? Who's involved there? Who are the stakeholders? How do they get this way? So learning some history, looking at state laws, because all the state laws have design built into them. So what the typeface is, how big it is, how the ballot gets laid out, what the instructions say, all that is in state law. Understanding what the systems, what the technology is for delivering an election and what the constraints are there and how they, how that stuff gets developed and designed, if you can call that design, and tested and certified. So really kind of over over some years, first as a hobby while I was doing independent consulting and then full-time starting in 2013 when Whitney Quisenberry and I co-founded the Center for Civic Design, really understanding deeply what the ecosystem is, what it looks like, how it works together and doesn't, and really spending a lot of time with local election officials to understand what their challenges and skills were, how we could possibly help them. One of the first things that I remember working on really was with a group of people who were on, we pulled ourselves together as a special project of what was then the Usability Professionals Association to see if we could teach election officials how to do usability testing. So we had to learn like, what is the election cycle like in any given election? What are the opportunities for doing testing? 
are there any prototypes that you could work from? What are the opportunities for remediating problems if you find them? What's the level of rigor you actually would need to understand whether there's a design problem and how to address it? Would it be acceptable even, this was an argument within that group, would it be acceptable even to have people who were not trained to do usability testing do usability testing? Ultimately, we came up with a little thing that we called the Local Election Official Usability Testing Kit. Been used thousands of times over the years. Still exists. It's out on the web in a couple of spaces, but um, my favorite is at electiontools.org, where you can download all the things that you need to do that, including instructions for how to do different levels of on your usability testing at different points in the cycle. That's really fascinating because that it also draws back to something that you were mentioning where you know you were talking about the challenge and how every state or local institution has different rules and regulations around doing this and you had to kind of not standardize but but provide almost guardrails or ways in which they could do this and have a better voter experience and to me to draw a parallel or an analog to something that we might think of in our work as like people who work on software and digital products that's a design system in some way right you're saying well here here are patterns that you can use and reuse in order to relatively speaking have a successful experience with these with these kind of components in this case happens to be a ballot or you know the voter experience yeah that's right so over the years with a whole bunch of other super smart people got to work on two really big influential projects one of which was affectionately called design for democracy because you know um, <laughs> nothing ego there that was a project of the uh, of AIGA with the election assistance that was funded by the election assistance commission which ultimately created a design system that was uh, for printed optical scan ballots that was based on research and testing. Really excellent work, was so important at the time, came out in 2007 in time for the 2008 presidential election. But two things, one was election officials were like kind of freaked out about the idea that they should redesign their ballots. They were not excited about that. And two is the voting systems that were available at the time didn't actually support that design. It took about 10 years to catch up. Fast forward to about 2011. Yeah, I think we first started talking about this in late 2011. Hardly anybody had picked up that design system and implemented it. There were a couple of spots in the US, but not a thing. And still voting systems are like refrigerators. You only buy one every, you know, when you need to, you, you don't right. do this every year. And so still in 2011, we're at a place where we don't have voting systems that support the best practice ballot design. At about the same time, Congress was ready to defund the Election Assistance Commission. So Whitney Quisenberry and I, with Drew Davies and a couple of other people, had started to see the value of telling election officials, well, just do one thing in this election and then do another thing in the next election, which they could feel comfortable with. Now, the other thing is that most people don't realize that there are way more elections than you realize. We're all hot and bothered about the presidential election, but in any given jurisdiction, there were at least two other elections this year. 
that's a lot of, that, those are natural iterations where you can try some out, try some new ideas and test ideas and see how it goes. Make sure nothing breaks and then do another thing. So we came up with that idea and that ultimately uh, led us to this idea of the field guides to ensuring voter intent, which are adorable, if I do say so myself, tiny little booklets that are each have 10 guidelines and illustrations, examples of each of the guidelines for specifically for election officials. There are 10 volumes and each one is on a different topic. The first one was about ballot design. That's really, really cool. These were handed out to individuals or, or election officials or both? Yeah. So the, uh, the target audience was always election officials and election offices were funded first through a Kickstarter and then through grants. We've always been able to give them away for free to election officials and to gubbies. If you're a designer and you want a set, we're going to charge you a lot of money for them because you're subsidizing for other people. Yeah. So there are like 5,000 sets extent in the world. Wow. Okay. So these got out, you know, this was really the way to, again, sort of distribute almost manually this, uh, this design system or these principles to say, here are things that you could do for better voter experience, better ballot design. What happened next? What happened next was a surprising uptake that happened both by Whitney and I going to every state election conference that we could get ourselves invited to, but also sort of organically. So even now we see examples out in the wild that we didn't have any contact with those election officials, but they've picked up the guidelines or the the design system. And uh, so that's really fun and exciting. Now in this election, practically every voter in this country, we tracked this for a while, actually, Practically every voter in the United States will interact with some artifact that the field guides and the Center for Civic Design influenced in some way. That is amazing. I think a lot of folks in our field, they find encouragement, they find motivation in being able to design something that has an impact on a lot of people. And I mean, you can say that unequivocally, head and shoulders, the design and the work that you and the team that you did that with is having a significant impact. Yeah, but it took years. <laughs> like, right. This was not a thing that could happen in one election cycle or even one presidential election cycle. It really did take most of two decades to get to this point. But I am very proud to say that it is easier to vote in the United States this year than it ever has been because of improvements in the voter experience. Well, you should be proud. I mean, that amount of work and to take that amount of time dedicated to one problem, albeit worthwhile and albeit necessary with how complex it is, I think that you and that team have a tremendous amount to be proud of. And that's, I mean, it's just really, really cool too to also say, you know, we're going to, we're going to be voting here in just a handful of days that work is going to touch us in some way. That, I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. You know, again, sort of summarizing some of the stuff that I heard you talk about <laughs> um, to try to draw an analog to the the work that we do in sort of our, you know, quote unquote, day-to-day lives, is like maybe folks in software, whatever it might be, is really like 
fall in love with the problem. I mean, you said it yourself. This started with a curiosity. Hey, how do elections work? <laughs> you know, and, and the reason why I want to come back and sort of I, I'm not at all looking to distill all of that work down to a simple statement, but I want to use it just as an analog to people doing work in day to day life, because I think it's important to call out. And I mean, keep me honest here. I think it's important to call out. You can't have any significant impact on any problem you're trying to solve. Until you really do the work of understanding it. And I think that some people like to hope that they can cut corners or this isn't something you're just going to throw a workshop at and walk out and say, okay, great, we're going to make you a design. Like you took 20 years understanding this right now. That's not to say that that has to happen in software, but I think that there's a, a, a really useful point to be learned there. Yeah. Don't get me started on hackathons. I think for designers in any heavily regulated industry, and there are more and more designers in heavily regulated industries, the process is really similar. It's very hard to develop deep domain expertise in a short time. But there's a kind of process that I have observed other people going through that I went through in a, over 20 years, but you can do in a shorter time. And that is like, learn what the regulations are. Because like if you're working in pharma or healthcare, definitely there are lots of regulations, lots of laws that you should know about that need to be built into your designs. Understand what the other constraints are. Like if you are building a system that costs a million dollars, but the procurement process or the acquisition process for the hospital or the medical office cannot deal with a million dollar system, you need to rethink some of your design choices. <laughs> Understand how what you're doing fits in in the larger ecosystem too. That's been really important in my practice over the years is that in design, we are very, we are trained to be laser focused on one user, our one user. But that user exists in a space where they interact with other people and other systems. And if you get it right for that person, what are the ripple effects of that? Are they all good? Are you sure about that? So like understanding where somebody fits in the, the larger stakeholder map and the larger ecosystem, how they interact with the other actors in that space. So much also comes down to Who's on your team? What have their experiences been like? What do they pay attention to and what do they care about? Do they come from diverse experiences? Are you being inclusive in who's there? When I worked in the federal government at the U.S. Digital Service, fortunately, folks had who I was working with had also sort of experienced learning a new domain in a very short time. And we sort of heuristically went through this process. It's a thing that you can, that you will recognize in yourself if, say, you've worked in, oh, aerospace or other industries where there's a lot of engineering and a lot of regulation that there's a lot of work for you to do to understand how what you're doing fits into that. You can't just pop in and make a good UI and be done. Right. No, I think that's that's uh, really important. There's a question I want to ask you, but I, as you were describing some of that, it felt like maybe more important or interesting one to ask is, you know, through the process of doing this in civic design, can you think of any stories where 
maybe you took that traditional approach that any of us might take thinking we can go and make these kind of recommendations without having the deep domain experience and maybe gotten it wrong. Like, are there any of those kind of situations you could, you could talk to us about stories that you might have? Designers love to do this, right? Like if you spend any time on Twitter or Reddit or, you know, social media generally, somebody will say, come on, how hard can this be? Why is ballot design so terrible? Why are we not all using the same ballot design? Just as an example. And like every couple of years, there'll be you know, somebody will post a teardown of, mm-hmm. of ballot design. And I'm just like, you don't know what the constraints are. You haven't asked the question about what those constraints are just so important. The only thing that I can talk about that really comes close to that is work that a really great team and I did on what ultimately became called the Anywhere Ballot. This was in the very early days of digital UIs and uh, before browsers were super standards compliant. So we had a grant to create a standards compliant, browser delivered, digital user interface for voting. All of these things were really important in 2012, 2013. (laughs) But our mission was to make an accessible digital user experience that already took into account all the stuff that we all knew already in terms of software design for people with uh, who were blind or who had low vision, who had mobility or dexterity issues, and then include approaches for people with invisible disabilities like low literacy, which is a huge problem in North America generally, but about 48% of U.S. adults read at or below the sixth grade level. And so that was our challenge. And I had been working in plain language for a really long time. Like that's been a thing for me for ages and ages. And I was working with a great team that also had been practicing this and a partner at the University of Baltimore, Catherine Summers, who teaches plain language to her graduate students. We started out with a prototype that was based on, you know, best practice, but we're all high lit people. And like we did two sessions with people who had low reading skills and low literacy. And we're like, oh shit, we are so wrong about this. <laughs> it's a good thing that we're testing. Like after two sessions, we literally threw out the prototype that we had created and started from scratch. So best practices are a great place to start. Definitely not a substitute for testing with your target user. I learned so much. Yeah. Big challenge there too, that at least I think is a challenge. I would love to ask you about what it's kind of almost twofold, right? On one hand, you have people, stakeholders, product owners, business owners, whatever, that say our products for everybody, which isn't true. And we, you know, we can kind of help narrow them down as to who really uses this, who we're really targeting, who's going to get the most value out of it. In your case, the ballots for just about anybody, right? I mean, there's very few restrictions there. I mean, you may obviously have to be of voting age and things like that. How did you manage that? I mean, how, you know, so even just practically speaking, how did you find those people? How did you ensure that they were the right people? Like what sort of criteria and approach did you take to that? Yeah. So one of the many benefits, uh, partnering with Catherine at the University of Baltimore and working with her students is that they had already built sort of community outreach program local to them where they had recruited folks with low literacy 
to help them do the work that they were doing. And so we tapped that community. Now, how the students actually recruited those folks was doing things like going into Baltimore supermarkets and barbershops and community centers and asking people, hey, will you help us co-design these things? This is the stuff that we're working on over the next few months and we need your help. We're going to pay you and you know we'll help you get back and forth. And people signed up. And so we sort of had this ready pool of folks. We didn't assess them for literacy coming into that pool, but instead, after they'd signed up to take part in a study, we used a standard assessment tool called Realm, R-E-A-L-M. That's a, actually a medical literacy a tool. Of It has 66 words on it, from really simple words to multi-syllable words. And you just ask people to read them out loud. Uh, you can make an assessment then about their basic literacy levels. So we had, how we had that set up was we had a grad student doing intake and they would assess the person. But the person running the usability test sessions on the prototype didn't know how that person, how the participant tested on that. But we had built in practices to, if somebody was really struggling with reading tasks, for example, we'd work together and I moderated most of the sessions, read the task and reiterate the task. So there was a bunch of practices that we had used for a long time that just didn't work. And we, we shifted what we were doing in terms of method to get what we needed out of the sessions. In that very first round, we did 33 usability testing sessions, iterating on the design across those sessions. And it was really fun. It was really challenging. It was really hard. We learned a ton. That design now, a version of it, a much better version of it, because there were other iterations on that design over the years, is built into most of the touchscreen voting systems that are out in the world now. That's really cool. I appreciate you sharing that story. One of the things in the back of my mind as you were, as you've been describing all of this work, a lot of complexities in terms of regulation and rules and how things need to get done. But I have to believe also challenges with stakeholders, right? So I think we all come up against this regardless of where we work or who we work for. But, you know, we, we plan our work well, we execute the work well, which you just shared a story about that and made all these iterations. But then you come back and you say, here's what we recommend. And a lot of times we butt up against challenges there because it's a people challenge. It has nothing to do with our process or the work necessarily, but it's sort of getting everybody around, you know, acting on these recommendations, at least considering them. And and you kind of even mentioned that earlier where some people were really freaked out about doing that. I mean, can you share anything about how that happened? Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there were no challenges (laughs) presenting ideas to stakeholders. (laughs) There are always challenges with this. A specific story comes to mind. For a couple of years, I was working on in at CCD on uh, helping states implement automatic voter registration. There are around 19 or 20 states that have implemented some version of this. And what this means is when you interact with a state agency for whatever service, say updating your driver's license, instead of asking you, do you want to register to vote? Yes or no. If we can see that you're qualified, we just automatically register you to vote and then send you a postcard or notify you in some other way that you're registered. And I was working with the state of Massachusetts to do this. And the stakeholders are like, we think people are going to hate this. 
<laughs> so can you just write a thing that the clerks at Registry of Motor Vehicles can hand out to their customers to say what it is and, and why, why we're doing this? I was like, I can, but let's do this instead. Why don't you come watch as I do prototype testing in an R&B branch? They're like, wait, we can do that? What is this thing that you're doing anyway? <laughs> and so we did this in Rhode Island too, and that was really fun. We went to you know a local office where people would, to the DMV, where people would update their driver's licenses or their state IDs, and we just intercepted people and said, we try out a thing because there's a little form, of course, because government runs on forms. And we had our stakeholders watch over our shoulders. And then eventually we invited them to actually run the sessions themselves. So my lesson here is show the work, just invite everybody in. Don't like, don't wait and then report out the results. Just be open and give your folks a look at the magic. You know, and this is something I feel like we've heard a lot of at times, you know, I certainly have had people mention it to me or say, that's great. And I would do that. But what happens when somebody doesn't have an appetite for that or, or isn't willing to sort of be part of it? You know, there's a term I'm looking for here. Be part of the action, right? The, where they say either I don't have enough time or, or maybe, you know, directly or indirectly sort of suggest it's not important enough for me to be there. My argument has been that at least in government, and I think this should be true in other situations as well, is if you are a manager or you're in a leadership position, you are accountable for what ultimately gets launched and rolled out and maintained. And if you are not taking part in the due diligence of observing directly how the interaction goes in the customer experience, you're not doing your job. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. You know, I love that. It makes me think of a piece of advice I give to designers of all stripes, uh, researchers as well, is when you're talking with these folks, I usually try to, you know, quote unquote, pitch it as uh, not my recommendation, but rather giving you confidence. So if you've understood their job fairly well, if you've had conversations with them and, and know what they're trying to accomplish and what they're responsible for, you can say, hey, I understand this is what you're trying to do. I've, I've got a, a way I think that can help you feel more confident that you're going to get that right. If you're willing to chat about that, let me know, <laughs> right? That is an excellent strategy. This worked with the head, with the administrator of the DMV in Rhode Island, because he was like, Mr. No, no, I'm not giving you access to clerks. No, you can't go. No. And I was like, okay, so I'm not here to make you look bad. I'm here to make everybody come out of this in the best possible success. So how do you know? Cause they had just rolled out a brand new system for licensing. Like, how did you know that was actually going to work for customers? He's like, I didn't until it was out in production. I was like, okay, so we can do this simple little thing that will take very little time and you'll get to see firsthand. So it's a risk mitigation tool. It's yeah. like, okay, I'll give you this much time and these many resources. And if I don't see value then. So as you say, that, that strategy does work around, you know, risk mitigation. Totally. And it sounds like, you know, that particular person, Mr. No, which I feel like they were, was a bunch, a series of kids books. It was like, Mr. No, Mr. Grumpy, Mr. You know, whatever. That was the first thing that came to mind. But 
it sounds like in that particular situation, you know, that person, again, just wanted the confidence to know they were doing the right things. And what I usually tell people is people who are averse to whatever it is you're suggesting you're talking about, they're typically not being intentionally malicious. They're not trying to be jerks. They don't understand what you do because it's not their job to understand what you do. But if you can help them see how what you do helps them get better, they're going to be pretty interested in that. Yeah, this will eventually get back to him. So, Bud, if you're out there, I'm so glad that we got to work together and it turned out as well as it did. (laughs) You're awesome. What he gave me was constraints, right? Like Mm -hmm. I had, I couldn't just do this fancy, big ass research project I had to do it in this window with these resources in in this space at that time to affect his decision making. And I was like, okay, let's try that. Let's make that let's make that work. When I was willing to do that and not just like hang desperately onto, but this is the right way to do it. We found a way of working together. That flexibility is so key when building inroads and uh, establishing trust with the people you work with and for. There's a quote in a talk that I give. It's actually from the last Indiana Jones movie, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where there, I don't know if you've seen it, but he, Indiana Jones is afraid of snakes, right? And so there's a scene where he's in quicksand about to die. The only thing they can throw him to help get him out is this like giant snake, which has a whole lot of writing and plot issues to begin with. But uh, it's to reiterate this point, he's afraid of snakes. And almost in the face of his own demise, he, he refuses to grab it because he says, stop calling it a snake. And so the people throwing it to him said, well, what should we call it? And he says, call it a rope. And But there's like a, there's an interesting point there that I use where it's like, if people are afraid of this idea of like testing or research, use their language. Use what, what they're comfortable with. Be flexible with that. And then all of a sudden, like you said, uh, uh, what you did is you embrace those constraints and said, great, we can do that. That's awesome. Let's try it that way. And then all of a sudden they go, oh, well, then they don't have a reason to say no anymore, too, because they're the ones that said it has to be this way. And you said, great, we can do it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. What works in government a lot is talking about risk mitigation. And so usability testing as a risk mitigation tool. Awesome. You know, I realize we're almost about at our time. There's a couple more things I wanted to cover, but I am curious If I were to just ask you, let's just say I completely forgot everything we talked about, but there was one thing (laughs) that you wanted to make sure that I took away from this. It was sort of the central point or one of the most important things. What would you say that is? If you find yourself asking the question, how hard can it be? It's probably really hard. (laughs) Um, Things that should be simple are not for reasons. I love it. Yeah. Simple and easy are mutually exclusive. Well, uh, I really appreciate you jumping on, taking the time. This was an awesome conversation. I could go for double or triple the amount of time, but uh, we need to be respectful of your time. You know, with that, I'm just kind of curious, is there anything that you want to share with folks that maybe we didn't talk about today or didn't actually cover in the conversation we had? Yeah, a couple of things, I think. One is there's still time to register and there's still time to vote. In many states, you can register the day of the election. So if you live in one of those places, don't, don't give up your chance. Don't give away your shot. Go show up and get a ballot and mark it and cast it. So that's a thing. Thing two is if you care about how government works, especially elections, get involved in local government. Sign up for a committee or a commission and bring your expertise and your humility 
with you, contribute to your community that way. And the third thing I want to leave you with really is, even though we talk about all these problems and how hard it is to vote and how many barriers there are to not only vote, but also to government services in general, it is easier than ever to get a ballot and cast it. Chances are you were automatically registered or your registration was updated. You could get a vote by mail ballot this year and mark it and cast it and get it in in time. And if you are the recipient of government services like unemployment assistance, which so many people did apply for this year with the pandemic, being able to do it online was just like one of the most important things. So designers go to work in government. It will be so rewarding. Nice. Well, you know what, too, and if there's any uh, links we can share, we can make sure to have those in the show notes, too, or any places where people can maybe find some of those opportunities to go and just sign up for a committee and things like that. So I think it's great advice. I think the work that all of us do can be applied to that. I love your qualification of bring your humility, be ready to learn and not just start throwing post-it notes on a wall and and think that we're going to solve this in a workshop. Awesome. Well, Dana, thank you so much for taking the time and, uh, and chatting with us today. Thank you for your excellent questions, Seth. Awesome. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E. L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.